This is a moral call right here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. Welcome, everyone. My name is Benjamin Day. And I'm Jillian Mason. And this is the Medicare for All podcast, the podcast for everybody who needs health care. And today's episode, this is really exciting because we are going to be celebrating a win, which we don't get to do nearly often enough. We're talking to the organizers and leaders at National Nurses United, who recently ran a very impactful campaign to get Representative John Garamendi from California to commit to being a co-sponsor for the Medicare for All bill in Congress. Now, Rep Garamendi did support some previous versions of Medicare for All in the House, but hadn't signed on, I think, since Rep Jayapal became the lead sponsor, felt like a long time ago, and completely rewrote the bill back in 2019. So this was a long campaign. Um, Y'all had to use multiple tactics. NNU and local organizers were able to bring him back into the fold, and he has committed to co-sponsoring the bill. So this is backpats all around. Congratulations. This is exciting. And NNU is going to give us kind of a detailed look into how the campaign came together and also why it was successful. We are super psyched to have you all here. So just to introduce our guests, we have here Deborah Berger, who is also a nurse, president of the National Nurses Union, which is the country's largest union of bedside nurses. Then we also have Jasmine Ruddy, Medicare for All team lead of the National Nurses United, and Max Cotterell, community organizer, National Nurses United, and our Medicare for All national team lead for this campaign, which is really exciting. It's really great to have you guys here. You ready to get started? We're ready. So let's just get right into it. Before we start with the campaign, though, I think it's really important to kind of set the context. And so, Deborah, I was wondering, you know, if we could just talk a little bit about this pandemic, right, has been particularly bad for nurses. So could you say a little bit about what nurses have gone through during the pandemic? And maybe like if we had Medicare for all as our healthcare system, how that experience might have been different. First of all, the hospitals have not made this pandemic easy at all, from not having the adequate PPE to not staffing the workplaces safely. And then, of course, that led to our moral distress and and moral injury. We don't refer it to as burnout because burnout implies that somehow the healthcare workers were at fault. So we just want to make sure that we get that right off the table. And then the other thing is the nurses have lost their colleagues and many of their community members. So on top of dealing with all of this work stress, they've also had to deal with significant loss in their life. And then under a Medicare for all system, we would have been so much further ahead because we would have had a robust public health system to rely on to move information that the public trusted instead of having all these makeshift workarounds because we don't have a public health care system. And it would have made it so much easier because we would have been able to get supplies that we needed out and reliably distributed. And we would have had hospital beds. We wouldn't have had to rely on the U.S. Navy to bring Navy ship to communities. So that 
in and of itself would have made a difference. And then, of course, having levels of healthcare, various tiers for people to sift through when they're trying to access healthcare. Nurses think of it as not tears, but tears, as in crying because they can't make sense of what they need to do in order to access care. So those are a few of the things that really are disconcerting for nurses because we see that every single day. I love the fact that you guys pay attention to the fact that this not only just hurts nurses personally, but also hurts nurses vicariously, right? When they see what's happening to their patients as well. And I think that might be something that people don't realize so much about healthcare providers, that they're feeling these pain for their patients as well as for themselves. Yeah, really important. Well, it is. And the fact that nurses were the substitute family during this crisis, you know, the only comfort that they had oftentimes dying alone and using an iPad as a makeshift way to communicate with somebody when you have a dying family member is not the way to go. Yeah. And I thought it was crazy that during this, probably the biggest health crisis in our living memory, hospitals were actually cutting capacity, right? And going through financial crises because they rely so much on, you know, procedures and things like that, that they were putting off during the pandemic and losing money from. Well, actually, they lost money from the for-profit thing, but they have made billions. And they've also done this thing where they're trying to implement these crisis stopgap measures as permanent standard care, like Kaiser's program, where a patient that needs to be hospitalized is oftentimes told that they can voluntarily go home and have their loved ones take care of them. That's absurd when you need 24-hour care to be reassured that you'll be monitored from home by this healthcare provider that has no social connection with you whatsoever and leaves the family to fend for themselves. And then, of course, the bear the burden if something tragically goes wrong. And it can, which is why you're in the hospital. The thought crossed my mind very briefly during the pandemic that it was going to become so obvious that we needed Medicare for all during this crisis that we would see a flood of members of Congress, just their eyes would open, the scales would fall from their eyes. They would say, look, we can't possibly have a healthcare system linked to the workplace when everyone's losing their jobs. But that did not happen. No major surprise there. And it turns out it is actually going to take a lot of organizing to get these legislators to support Medicare for all to do the glaringly obvious right thing. So Jasmine, I wanted to ask you a question. You know, as, as a whole, I'd say the Medicare for all movement has kind of struggled to add co-sponsors these last couple of years, especially since we racked up just like a huge number of wins. I think it was that 2017-2018 session. Can you tell us a little bit about NNU's kind of broader Medicare for all strategy this past year? And like, why in particular did you prioritize Caramendi as part of that strategy? Yeah, sure, sure. Happy to speak to that. And just to back up to like March of this year, because I think that's when a lot of this kind of most recent phase of work really started. The newest version of the Medicare for All bill in Congress was about to be reintroduced with a new, you know, session of Congress. Previously was uh, HR 1384 and was reintroduced this session as, as HR 1976. Much better number. A good year. Yes, agreed. Yeah. <laughs> and and we knew that we needed to go harder than ever for this bill. You know, as Deborah was just saying, I mean, the nurses have been fighting for decades for, for Medicare for all, but it's only been more underscored lately that 
now is more clear than ever, right? That um, we need this legislation urgently and, and nobody knows that better than nurses. So we knew that we, we needed to hit the ground running on this bill. And there was a lot of great organizing that was done in the weeks leading up to the reintroduction, not just by us, but I mean, dozens of organizations and thousands of volunteers collectively with our campaign and other campaigns to get co-sponsors, original co-sponsors on the bill the day it was reintroduced, I believe March 17th, St. Patrick's Day of this year. And on that day, collectively as a movement, some folks might know this, but we achieved 112 original co-sponsors, which was really, really huge. And that was just on the 17th. In the weeks and kind of months, like right after that, we collectively ticked that number up to 118 before Garamendi. That's what that's where we were sitting before Garamendi was 118. That's that's huge, right? I mean, that's that's very significant. That is more than half the Democrats in the House of Representatives that are co-sponsors on Medicare for all. That is light years ahead of where we were a couple of years ago. It's also nowhere near enough, right? If we put Medicare for all on the on the floor for a vote tomorrow, it would fail because only half the Democrats support it. So we knew that there was urgently this need for organizing in districts of non-co-sponsor Democrats to move them to the bill. I mean, as you were saying, Ben, you would think that maybe the, the facts and the figures and and the pandemic would move these legislators to, to co-sponsor, but it is the greed of the industry and you know the way that a lot of these corporate Democrats are unfortunately influenced by that far outweighs you know the facts and the figures. And in fact, that's exactly what we saw play out with Garamendi, which I think we'll we'll get to. But anyway, just to say, I mean, we we basically chose a list of, of Democrats early in the year, in right after March, that we wanted to focus on. And we set out with the help of some amazing volunteers to organize district level campaigns in each of their districts. By the time the fall ran uh, kind of came around, we wanted to hone that even further. We were working in about 40 districts for most of the year, but we wanted to really hone in the power of the national Medicare for all movement. And so we narrowed that list for the fall down to four members of Congress. So those were Rep. Albio Ceres in New Jersey, Rep. Joyce Beatty in Ohio, Rep. John Garamendi in California, and Rep. Vicente Gonzalez in Texas. So we've spent most of the fall working just on those four people. And that's when we got Garamendi on. I'm sure he was very grateful to be the lucky four. I'm <laughs> lucky four. To be tar- <laughs> oh, there are four targets and one of them is me. Um, <laughs> all right. So let's turn it to Max for a second. Basically, what we've, we've all seen this, anyone who's involved in social justice movements right now, it, it has not been an easy year to organize or lobby legislators because of all the COVID protocols. You know, some of our most effective tactics that we use usually, right, have not been necessarily safe, right? You can't do a sit-in at a senator's office when you're afraid that everyone's going to get COVID. So understand that y'all got pretty creative and that you used a lot of like guerrilla tactics to help move this rep. Do you think you could tell us a little bit about what those tactics were and how you chose them and how you got around the pandemic? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think you already said it, so I won't belabor it, but it has been very difficult, I think, with the loss of face-to-face organizing, because it's just like the bread and butter of, of what we do. And in this particular pressure campaign, we used a ton of different tactics. And I think in the kind of framing of COVID and guerrilla tactics, I would pull out three that we used among many, many others. So the first, starting back in September, what we did is we kind of laid out a strategy of kind of escalation. And the very first thing that we did was that we um, started texting uh, voters in Garamendi's district to identify supporters. 
And then from there, what we did is a number of different things to follow up with them to, you know, kind of catalyze them to take action. And one of the things that we did, again, in the context of COVID, and this is something that we borrowed from the electoral sphere that we've used in, in elections before, is that we did, we organized folks around the country to write postcards to these uh, Medicare for All supporting voters in, in Garamendi's district. Yeah, so the, the postcards were handwritten postcards to people we had already identified as Medicare for All supporters, basically reminding them, hey, your member of Congress does not currently support Medicare for All, and we're working on changing that. So we really need you to get involved, to sign this petition, you know, which allows them to get on our list and further involved in our campaign, but also to make a call to his office. So that was... I wrote postcards. Yeah, then yeah, I remember you on the postcard <laughs> yeah. party. <laughs> yeah, I think I was mostly on Rep Beatty's uh, uh, district in, in Ohio, but yeah. <laughs> I've lost the skill of handwriting, though. I've, I realize <laughs> I, I write by hand so little, it's kind of sad. <laughs> yeah, there's a little tangent I think you know we could go on as far as like, this is an interesting thing we did where, where there were people around the country who were contributing to this very local campaign. And so there was a local but also national element, but that's a tangent I will... Uh, save for later. Two, I think two of the other tactics to just highlight real real quick are that we did, so we laid out the strategy starting in September, which started with texting and then we did postcarding and phone making. But what it led up to was a day of action in early November where we did a car caravan in the district. And again, this is a tactic that we did because it's something that we can do while, you know, social distancing and it's it's a, a more COVID friendly tactic that, that we can do right now. And the car caravan was was really successful. We did it in the uh, biggest city in the district, which is not a very big city. It's Davis, Davis, California. And, you know, we, we organized it so that it would be on the same day as the Davis Farmers Market, which is uh, the day where everybody in Davis is out walking around, which is perfect for a car caravan to come by, you know, honking their horns. So we got a ton of eyes on the car caravan from that. We also made a really concerted effort to get media coverage of that. We got a segment on the largest local TV station. We got an article in the local paper that covered it. So, you know, we were definitely able to make a splash with that tactic. And then the last one, the last one I'll highlight was a really fun one, which is that we did building projections in the district. And again, Davis is not a very big city. So, you know, I was on like Google Maps trying to find like the biggest building in Davis that we could do a projection on. So we did one on uh, Sproul Hall at the campus of UC Davis, which is literally the largest building in Davis. And then we also did a projection onto Garamendi's office itself. And we were able to use those pictures for social media, which continue to get airtime out of that action. And also the, the projection, I should say, it, it said something like, you know, Representative Garamendi, when will you do the right thing and co-sponsor Medicare for All? So kind of a direct challenge to him to, to co-sponsor. And again, something that we could use on social media after after the day. Although, action. you know, I love the projections and I, I've loved the billboards too, even though they're the least grassrootsy thing you guys have been doing. There's just something that I'm, they must really feel that one every time they drive to work, having to like drive past the shame sign or something, you know, <laughs> and Deborah, I wanted to ask, it's actually a little bit unusual for a trade union to be running a community organizing campaign. I mean, you guys have been working with, obviously nurses have been involved with this campaign, but you've been organizing way beyond just nurses. You've been organizing Medicare for all activists in all of these districts who are just community activists. So Deborah, why did any of you decide to kind of invest in community organizing, particularly for Medicare for all, which not many unions do that? You're right. Not a lot of unions do that. But our union is caregivers, patient advocates. And we have had a long history through the California Nurses Association and during our founding in 2009 of 
really working with the communities where we provide care and where we live. So it's part of what we need to do in order to make sure our communities are safe, not only for our patients, but for us and our families as well. So it's really important that we are out there advocating because it directly impacts how we're able to deliver care in our community. And if it weren't for the fact that we're telling people all the time, yes, we're working on getting access to healthcare and not the tiered system with the Affordable Care Act, but real Medicare for all, because it is so crucial to our profession every single day. And like I said before, we're the ones in the room where patients are actually trying to figure out, how am I going to pay for this new chemo drug? How am I going to pay for these paid pills and my chemo drug? How am I going to afford to be able to live where I live with now this devastating disease. And so we are always trying to figure out how we can make sure that our patients and our communities understand what is at stake for them in this whole fight. And it is working. And eventually, those corporate style politicians will have to be accountable to the people that elect them. So that's the only way we're going to do it is to highlight all of these stories. Just a quick follow-up for you, Deborah, because that's an amazing vision. And I wish that the entire labor movement shared that vision of, you know, wanting to do right for the communities that workers live in. And things are changing, of course, and, and more and more unions have been kind of starting to do that kind of community activism. But I've noticed that so many of our great Medicare for All activists are nurses. And I wondered, is there something in particular about the skills that make you a good nurse that also make you a really good community organizer? Because it seems like nurses are great at having these kind of conversations with folks. I think it's because we have a natural connection with people when we're talking to them to just meet them where they are. You know, you don't impose your lofty goals on them. So we actually try to find out what it is that would get them to yes, what it is that move somebody because what moves one person isn't going to move another person. And so we understand that there's one-on-one conversations that have to happen in order to get somebody personally invested in it and conveying that there's hope out there. Nurses are constantly providing hope for patients that have terminal illnesses, right? and trying to move them past that devastating disease and figure out what they can do to make their lives better. So providing education, providing opportunities to participate. And as organizers know, you have to be able to give them assignments, right? (laughs) Nurses are good at giving assignments for follow-up. So I think that that's what really does make a huge difference in how nurses interact with people. And organizers have learned a lot from us nurses, but us nurses have learned a lot from our organizers on how to move people and how how to accept no 
but how to move a no to even a maybe will help move the mountain. You're saying basically every nurse is a therapist, <laughs> so to much. speak. And an organizer. Like every nurse is an organizer. <laughs> just like the organizers, they're therapists. I mean, I'm sure that when we've done all of these chats and phone calls, we've all gotten into a conversation with somebody that was way more personal than you had actually <laughs> intended. And you just have to move through that. So it, it is really exciting. Yeah, I'm jumping a little bit ahead of myself. Usually think our podcast volunteer team at the end of the podcast, but we do have a brand new podcast manager who is an RN based in California, Angelique Davis. So thank you, Angelique, for stepping Yay. up. She's bringing all of her project management skills from her job to our podcast. So I can't be wait to be assigned tasks and put in my place. <laughs> Gently and kindly in a way that I feel like I'm choosing it my own. My sister became a nurse a couple of years ago, and she has gotten more aggressive about delegating since then. That's very interesting. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm going to be bringing that up at Christmas dinner. Yep. So let's think about like what the criteria are for success here, right? For folks who are thinking about trying to replicate something like this in their districts, right? Jasmine and Max, what do you all think makes the difference between a group that succeeds in getting their rep to a yes and the ones that struggle to reach the finish line? Such a good question. Max, do you want to start or, do, or should I start or? Go for it. I mean, it's the question, right? I mean, the first thing I will say is our absolute takeaway from this campaign is that this can be replicated. If you've been organizing in your congressional district to move your representative, particularly if they're a Democrat, uh, to co-sponsor Medicare for All. This to me feels like a case study that like can be replicated elsewhere. And and there are definitely a couple of key ingredients that, that I think are, are key to success. I mean, the first is having a, a clear strategy and understanding how that strategy will escalate over time, right? Like sort of knowing where your point A is and where you want your point Z to be is always so key, right? So starting out with, it sounds simple to say, but like starting out with what is your strategy gonna be? What are your tactics? What is your timeline? Just that basic campaign planning. I also think it's about responding to what's working. So there was a, a really kind of exciting moment in this campaign. Uh, we were hoping that the district leader, the volunteer district leader in this district, his name is Dylan. We were hoping he was going to be able to, to join this. He, he wasn't able to make it, but he has just this amazing story of what was happening to him when he was organizing the caravan locally in Davis, which is that the day before the caravan was supposed to take place, Garamendi called him personally on the phone and was like clearly aware of the pressure and the organizing that was taking place. Mm -hmm. Now, I should say that Garamendi and Dylan had a, somewhat of a personal relationship Dylan used to work for Garamendi on his one of his re-election mm. campaigns. But that was a really that big helps. deal. <laughs> that this is also the day when Congress was like actively negotiating around Build Back Better on the floor, like actively on the floor, whipping votes. And Garamendi took the time because he had heard about the organizing going on to personally call Dylan. And all of that told us that we had clearly gotten under his his skin there, right? That he was like he was aware of the organizing. He was. I, trying to sort of like maybe convince Dylan to like cancel the action the next day. Um, but it was like, when you get those moments that are like, you get just any sliver of like working, 
just keep driving. I mean, that all that told us was let's just keep doing what we're doing. Like clearly we're, we're, we're getting to him and we're successfully building public pressure in the district. And a few weeks later, you know, that's what worked. And at some point I would love to hear Deborah just talk about what happened in the, in the meeting itself, where he kind of revealed that he was going to co-sponsor because that was also such a wonderful moment. But I think those are, I think those are really the things, you know, yeah, having a plan and, and paying attention to what's working and making sure that your plan is flexible. But Max, I don't know if you would add anything else. I mean, I would just underline what you said. I think that the biggest takeaway is that this can be replicated in other places. The other the other two things I was thinking of are just persistence. You know, I, I talked to folks in this district a year ago who were like, this is not possible. We've tried to do it. Garamendi will not co-sponsor. He is where he is. But we didn't let that discourage us. And we kept working at it. And lo and behold, it worked, right? So persistence, I think, is really important. The other thing, another kind of turning point when I like think back on this pressure campaign is the importance of involving other groups. Because I think that one thing that can happen a lot is that it's easy for one, like one person who's really driving all of the organizing in a district or one group to just get like pigeonholed by, by a member of Congress and for them to just be like, oh, this is just one passionate person or one just pa passionate group. Another another turning point in this campaign, I think, was when we organized a sign-on letter that we sent to the office of different unions in the district and, and labor organizations. We got every central labor council in the district to sign on to the letter. The, we got the Sacramento Labor Council to send it on, you know, on their letter. Head. I think at that point, it was also like, you know, me just guessing, but I'm guessing he saw that and was like, okay, this is becoming a bigger thing. First, it was just this union badgering me. And now I got all the unions in my district after me. And, and, you know, he responded to that letter, set up a meeting, and that's where he ultimately told us he would sign on. So I think that that, you know, the importance of involving other groups is also really, really key. So Deborah, what did happen at that meeting? Now I'm dying of curiosity. <laughs> it was a, a surreal meeting, but there were a couple of other meetings before that, which were set up as Medicare for all meetings to lobby your congressman. And we were at those meetings and I was fortunate to be there for two of them. And just calling him out and saying, in California, you were so supportive of Medicare for all. When you were the state insurance commissioner, you helped pave the way to set up Medicare for all in California when the laws were passed. So you did a lot of that work and, you know, just reminded him of the relationship that our union has had with him for so long and has supported him because he supported Medicare for all, right? So there was that not so subtle, we supported you and we can remove that support. But we never <laughs> went there because... That would defeat the purpose that puts people's backs up against the wall and it doesn't get you anywhere. But at that meeting, we were all signed on. We were all ready because at that time, we still didn't know that he was even going to announce. And he got on, he started talking and he said, and just before we get started, I want to let you know, I called Pramila Jayapal and I've signed I on. And I was like... <laughs> Okay, done. Let's go home. But then I realized, oh, wait, after he signs on, then we actually have to give him homework. We have to have report yeah, back. We have to have all of that stuff. And, and it was so exciting to just actually be able to acknowledge his leadership and say, you know, it really does make a difference what you do. And we actually got some good information from him 
on where he felt pressure points were from for other lawmakers. So Amira was busy. Amira is the DC advocacy, legislative advocate for NNU. So she was busy taking notes about some of the suggestions that he had. Some we'd already tried, but he seemed to think that some of them were worth actually giving a shot. But the meeting was just, I was ready to pop champagne and just... Yeah, I have seen these legislators who you have, it feels like you have to move heaven and earth to get them to support the bill, but then they sometimes become champions afterwards, not just like reluctant supporters. It's really, it works. Yeah. It was all of the meetings, all of the work that was done, the caravans. I think that it was the shining the light on his headquarters that probably <laughs> threw him over the edge because... <laughs> You know, when you when you have to drive by that headquarters and he likes to see himself as more progressive and to be sort of highlighted and outed that you're not kind of wakes you up. Right. And and I think it for him, he knows better. He carried booklets on Medicare for all in his trunk all the time. You know, so it was really sad that he wasn't there with us. And I don't know the personal dynamics of what was going on. Maybe it was something in DC, you know, who knows what it was, but it was really exciting. And we do get these, some legislators kind of fall off the bill, um, usually for intentional reasons, but we don't always learn the reasons. I mean, I think the moment he dropped off was kind of when the Medicare for all movement became a little more real that was when Bernie was really potentially threatening as a viable presidential candidate and huge numbers of Democrats were signing on to the bill. And once it becomes more real, sometimes people are like, oh, wait, um, I, I wasn't quite thinking through all of the potential you yeah. know, groups I might might alienate by supporting this. Yeah. Um, someone has to tell this to Jared Golden in, in Maine, who just like voted against Build Back Better after. We, we're going to end with New Year's resolutions for the Medicare for All movement. But before that, I, I wanted to kind of highlight what both Jasmine and Max had said earlier, which was, I, I kind of feel like a lot of the districts where our campaigns fizzle out or don't get to a yes with a legislator it's because losing hope essentially it's like well we tried they said no you start to have this oppositional attitude towards the legislator it's like they're the enemy they're never going to support this they're against us and people just kind of give up and start feeling like their work isn't going to be effective and isn't going to work in the end but then the groups that kind of feel like they have an escalation plan and keep some hope that they're going to be able to get this legislator if they push hard enough, generate enough calls, generate enough texts, enough pressure eventually, and really just stick to it like pathologically, <laughs> that those are the ones that actually kind of succeed and get over the finish line. So I really do, I, I would want to hammer home like that point. I don't know, Jasmine, Max, if you have anything else to say about that, but. No, I don't think so. I mean, I totally, totally agree. And I, you know, well, one thing I guess I'll, I'll add is like, we're greatly fortunate that we were able to do things like you know, do building projections. And we also got an ad in the Sacramento Bee, you know, calling him out. And those things I think were definitely very, very helpful, but it doesn't mean that those kinds of things are, are necessary, right? In order to, to organize locally in your district. I think having a plan is just, you know, understanding who your member of Congress is, what's going to move them. And, and a lot of this work, it doesn't 
anyone anywhere can can do this kind of work. So I don't want to suggest that it takes like a ton of an entire national movement. It was certainly helpful for Garamendi, but I do think that anyone can can be doing this kind of organizing anywhere. It just takes knowing your district and, and your member of Congress. And I, um, I think what people yeah. have to remember is that there's all these little personal interconnections that you have in your community. And the politicians know this, right? And so if you're, you've said, I've tried this before, I've tried this before, I've tried this before, you're letting them off too easy. And if you give up, you're letting them off the hook. It's the power of all of these people and these communities that really brought the change, right? Because it was more than Garamendi driving by his office that noticed that. And so it's, we, we've got to be able to keep the pressure on because that's really what will make the difference. And sure, all the caravans are fun, the texting parties are fun, but it still is make an appointment to go down to his office, right? The person that you're trying to move, show up once a month, show up twice a month. It doesn't cost you anything. Write a letter, an email. It, it all... It all adds up. All these little grains of sand actually end up making a mountain that they can't climb over eventually. Yeah. And I I think also what we sometimes see is um, people will just organize the left in a district, will just organize progressive activists in their district who are all kind of well-known, you know, activists or organizers. That's not what you all were doing. You were texting into the voter list, just my, kind of everyday my sister people. even got a phone call. She was oh, That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and just like what you were talking about, Deborah, like with, you know, using community relationships that are not just this insular left uh, network, which will is is a little too easy to write off for a lot of these these members of Congress. Yeah. So this is really organizing within the community yeah. with people we don't know. So yeah, it's like the goal is to make sure that when they go to the grocery store, when they go to church, that there's someone there who's saying, hey, why aren't you doing the right thing on that Medicare thing, right? Like we need their everyday lives to be flooded with uh, reminders. And I can't tell you, I can't tell you how many times that like scenarios like that would come up while we were, you know, reaching out to voters where someone would be like, oh, I was his elementary, you know, I was his son's elementary school teacher or like, oh, he comes to my coffee shop all the time. Like there's just so many connections like that. And, you know, when when we talk to so many thousands of people in the district, it's, you know, we're just bound to trim them up. And a lot of those people are going to be huge Medicare for all supporters. So you never know what's going to happen. I think you mentioned to me that you once accidentally texted a member of Congress themselves while you were text banking to lobby the legislator, right? Because <laughs> of course they're in the voter file. So <laughs> that's pretty great. <laughs> all right. Did well, they do it? Did they agree to lobby? No. <laughs> <laughs> lobby themselves? <laughs> Self-lobbying? But it can't help. I mean, my, one of my favorite things is to, I mean, Jasmine had said have a, you know, have a long-term strategy, a plan of escalation. Um, and I like to actually tell the legislators about our lobbying plan in advance to say, so we're going to do this card writing campaign and then we're going to text all the voters and then we're going to knock on doors and it gives them a chance at each level of escalation to stop the pain and, and stop the pressure and just kind of just do the right thing. But Absolutely. You know, you don't want to be organizing like in a silo without them aware at all. And uh, no, I totally, totally agree. Yeah. Keep them updated with what you're doing. And well, if you don't sign on, here's what we're going to do. Yeah, absolutely. 
Awesome. So why don't we end with this? This is our last episode of 2021. I'm so glad we got to do it with you all and uh, to talk about a victory and how to replicate that going into 2022. So why don't we end with our New Year's resolutions for the Medicare for All movement? So we don't need the diet plans or any of that stuff. We want the organizing winning movement plans for next year. Uh, Deborah, can we start with you? Uh, one New Year's resolution would be to join a texting party. Those are really easy. I was surprised at how easy they're, they're now my favorite thing to do. We thought that this was like only millennials love to text. No, is, it is so <laughs> but I do too. <laughs> Even the crazy messages uh, are amusing and are entertaining. Fun. Yeah, it is like a really quick, satisfying way to interact with a bunch of people, kind of in an intimate way, like in their pocket. Uh, Max? Yeah, I think I'm going to stitch together two pieces of wisdom that I think Jasmine and Deborah touched on, which is that I think my new New Year's resolution is for us and for the Medicare for All movement to do a good job and do a better job of addressing what the healthcare industry is doing, like the changing terrain, right? Because I think during COVID, the healthcare industry is trying to take advantage of this moment to implement crisis standards of care, move care to the home, privatize Medicare. And, you know, we should be taking it in the other direction. So we should be like focused on what they're doing, but also making our case that, hey, no, this moment actually shows why we need Medicare for all. So my, my resolution is for us to do a better job messaging that. That's a great one. Jasmine? Can I say two? Yeah, <laughs> go for it. There's so many things we have to do. There's so much work we have to do in 2022, y'all. I would say, I mean, first of all, I think we need to be figuring out how to take on the industry and our corporate opposition in Medicare for All more than ever before. I mean, we all saw the way that pharma and the insurance companies and the hospital corporations fought against the Build Back Better bill. That was just Medicare expansion. That is just cheaper insulin and lowering the age. I mean, they spent ridiculous amounts of money and fought tooth and nail. Dentists too, apparently. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the power of the dental industry. I didn't even... I had totally. no idea. Yeah. And so we, I mean, we, we can imagine the kind of opposition we're going to increasingly face as we get closer to Medicare for all. I mean, they are going to stop at nothing. They're going to spend every single dollar that they have against us. So I think we need to figure out how to be campaigning, you know, directly taking on our corporate opposition. And I know there's a lot of plans in the works. We're really excited to be working, you know, continuing to work on our patients over profits campaign targeting politicians who take some of the most money from these corporations from our CVS campaign. A lot of folks don't know that CVS is the largest donor to the largest anti-Medicare for a lobby group, all that kind of work. I would say that that's a big one. And then the second thing I would say, this is a little bit separated, but really not at all. Folks who are in California, we have, I know there are, there are a lot of states um, and a lot of places around the country working on amazing legislation. Things are really heating up in New York with the New York Health Act. We have a lot of our membership when National Nurses United is, is in California with the California Nurses Association. And we have a massive opportunity to move forward what we're calling the CalCare bill in just a couple of weeks in January. And I think that if we can make any kind of progress in 2022, at the state level, I think that that is going to be really key. Those are my two. All right. You have to follow through <laughs> your resolutions. So we want to see Medicare for All in California next year and the destruction of the CVS. So do lobby. you guys have any um, <laughs> New Year's resolutions on this? Right? We better. <laughs> Jillian, you want um, to start? <clears throat> so 
I guess just this whole conversation has reminded me about how important relationships are in our fight and real relationships too, not tweeting out our anger at, you know, random people over the internet. It's basically just, let's have real conversations with our neighbors, with our friends. Let's have conversations at the doorstep, you know, talking to people uh, in our communities. And yeah, that's my New Year's resolution. Real talk, real talk. All right. <laughs> I think my resolution is, it's a little off topic, I guess, but I, I, I was also thinking about, you know, when people are starting to talk to their legislators, ask them to sign on. It does matter who the people are and the stories they tell. I think it's really important that we have especially people who have been directly impacted by our broken healthcare system to be kind of leaders of this and to be a big part of pushing these legislators and holding them to account. So we are planning all sorts of things next year at Healthcare Now, but I just want to do a better job of focusing on supporting patients who have been impacted by the healthcare system in sometimes really horrifying ways and sometimes in just the daily grinding, you know, way that many of us are impacted, totally unfair and problematic ways in taking leadership roles in these campaigns and making those stories a big part of pushing our legislators and, and making them support Medicare for all. So that's, this is a great uh, group of resolutions. Thanks to everyone who also has been listening to the podcast, watching the podcast for the 2021. We made it through the pandemic, this section of the pandemic. Now we get Omicron pandemic, I guess. Um, I'm really like, when can we get back to in-person organizing? But until then, we're just going to have to be as creative as NNU has been. So thank you so much, everyone, for a great year. We have um, Angelique Davis, the RN, who's our new podcast manager. Lindsay Baish was our uh, researcher. Our show notes writer was Jerry Katz, also a nurse from Minnesota, our Worth of Minnesota Nurses Association. And then we have a new audio editor, Arena Budanova. So thanks, everyone on the team. Talk to you all later. Bye.